0: One. The idea of one seems so small, so insignificant, but history has shown us that it all begins with one. One idea, one dream, one movement can ignite change. One idea in a garage designed the future one decision to speak up gave a generation a reason to stand up. One small step inspired exploration. That's one small step for man. One decision to stay seated changed a nation. One invasion started a revolution. One invention illuminated possibilities. One proclamation defined freedom. One document forged a country. One writer moved millions. One nail reformed a religion. But before all of that, one event changed everything.
1: Well, happy Easter, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Today is, without question, the most significant day of the year for followers of Jesus. But I would argue it's also an incredible day for those of you who brought with you questions and doubts about Jesus. Maybe you've been riding the brakes on your faith because you just can't seem to get resolution to the tensions and questions. And if that's you, I am so glad that you are here because what we're gonna talk about today really is an end run around all of the questions and objections people tend to bring to Christianity. And so to help you see what I mean, I need to tell you about a conversation I was a part of over two decades ago at a very special place in my heart, the Michigan Student Union in Ann Arbor. By the way, there was a little game last night. (laughs) My wife made me promise that I wouldn't bring it up, but I did. So anyway, uh, in the back of this building, uh, there was a gathering put on by Student Affairs, and they wanted to have a cross-faith dialogue to sort of foster tolerance and understanding. And so uh, this particular round of it, uh, there were representatives from the three main monotheistic religions on planet Earth, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, And so there was a practicing Muslim there, and there was a Jewish student there, and then representing 2.2 billion Christians in the world at 20 years old, me. Thank you very much. I don't know why I was chosen. But anyway, uh, it was a fascinating conversation. And it began with the moderator exploring all of the different ways that our faiths were common. Uh, so we talked about how in all of our faiths we're encouraged to move away from selfishness and move in the direction of a selfless living, where we put others in front of ourselves. We talked about the challenges to give and serve and forgive and love. And and so we spent time exploring all the things we had in common. And then of course where the conversation got really interesting was when the moderator asked us this question. Uh, with so much in common, what makes each of your traditions Unique. I mean, aren't they all kind of the same thing? And in that moment, I knew exactly what I was going to say because there are a lot of religions that will gather around a book or a prophet or teachings, but for Christianity, the whole thing really hangs on a historical event that we're here this morning to remember and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And just so you're clear, the first Christians understood this. Uh, that Christianity would not exist apart from a resurrection. There would be no New Testament apart from a resurrection. There's a letter written by a pastor named Paul to some early Christians in Greece, hundreds of miles away from the city where Jesus rose from the dead. And they were wondering, how central is this resurrection thing? And Paul, who had, by the way, himself come face to face with the resurrected Jesus, wrote these words in a letter. He said, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He said, everything in Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection. And I'll never forget the moment when the moderator looked at me and said, I knew you were going to say that. And then he said, "He said, I'm wondering, you're a biology major. And I said, yep. And he said, and you're pre-med. I said, yep. And he goes, and you're analytical. I said, yep. And he said, how in the world did you, a rational, analytical person, ever come to believe that a man came back from the dead? He says, in my experience, dead people stay dead, and everybody laughed, okay? Um, and I look back, and I talk to him about the chain. Now, if, you, if you've been around here at all, you know I have a chain. It's my Easter chain. comes out a couple times a year. Um, but the chain that I was talking about then and now is this chain of eyewitnesses that goes back to the resurrection, so if you or I are the top link in the chain and someone told us about the resurrection and someone told them about the resurrection, if you go back far enough, you find those first links in the chain and that first link are the actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so the question is, if we can trust the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, then the rest of the chain holds. And so what I'm going to do with our time today is tell you why I think we can, in fact, trust the first link in the chain, specifically because of two guys who become the unlikely, unsung heroes of Easter. Now, their story intersects with the life of Jesus midway through his public ministry. Jesus spent about three years, as best as we can tell, teaching and performing miracles. And midway through that time, these two guys begin to pay attention to, to Jesus. Uh, they were two guys that belonged to a particular religious category of Judaism. They were Pharisees. And the Pharisees were an interesting group because the Pharisees had made it their obsession to follow the rules. Okay, some of you have a friend, you're like, they, are, they don't know that, but they're kind of a Pharisee too. But for the Pharisees, they memorized the Old Testament laws, they ranked them, and they did everything they could to follow all the rules, because they believed that to stay in right standing with God, you had to follow the rules. It was behavior that led you to a spot where you were at peace with God. And if you've ever spent any time reading those first accounts of Jesus' life, you know that the Pharisees categorically didn't like Jesus because Jesus didn't follow all their rules. Jesus, uh, they didn't like Jesus because of the way he taught people, and they really didn't like Jesus because people liked Jesus, a lot of times way more than they liked them. And so as Jesus' popularity would grow, so would grow the threat to their influence and authority and power. So that was the Pharisees as a category, but there was a tiny breakaway group of Pharisees who became (laughs) fascinated with Jesus. They just couldn't write him off because when they watched him heal miraculously and they heard him teach, something deep within them understood that, that no one could do the things Jesus was doing unless he had come from God. And so this tiny breakaway sect, we're not sure how big it was, but we have the names of two Of these Pharisees, one a man named Nicodemus and one a man named Joseph, they decide to approach Jesus and just ask him because what he's teaching is so different than what they understand. Maybe we'll just go ask him specifically about the question that they most wanted answered. And so Nicodemus is elected and goes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want anyone to know. That he's there. And fortunately for us, John, an early follower of Jesus, records the conversation that they had. Here's the setup. Uh, John tells us now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which basically means Nicodemus was like a senator or a congressman. Lots of authority, lots of influence, lots of power. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which is a Jewish word for teacher, "Uh, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And so this is all sort of the preamble to the question, but before Nicodemus can ask the question, Jesus answers the question, which probably was a weird experience for Nicodemus, but here's the answer to the question he hadn't asked yet. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Question, what is this the answer to? I would argue the question Nicodemus didn't get to ask went something like this. Jesus, how do I know where I stand with God? How do I know that when I die, I get upgraded and not downgraded, right? And your answer about being born again is a little confusing And and so we know Nicodemus is confused because of what he says next. Nicodemus says, "Um, how can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. And the next part is a little gross, so we'll just move right past it. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Awkward. Right. So what in the world does it mean, Jesus, to be born again? And here's the thing. Uh, Jesus, I really want to know. Because the miracles and the way you teach, you're clearly from God. How, how Jesus, do we know where we stand with God? And Jesus answered. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, in other words, be at peace with God, go to heaven, without being born of water and the Spirit. And I think Nicodemus is like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he continues. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And I think Nicodemus understood this last part. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Because, okay, like people make more people, dogs make more dogs, cats make more cats. Got that part. And and so what Jesus is saying is that if there's going to be a birth into the kingdom of God, then God's spirit must be involved. It must be like a spiritual birth experience. Now that's what Jesus said. But I would argue that this concept blew Nicodemus' mind. Because the Pharisees thought of God as sort of a cosmic Santa Claus, right? He makes a list, he checks it twice, he's constantly watching who's following the rules, who's not following the rules, and and who's good enough to sort of stay in good standing with God. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, that's not how this works, fact, you need to think of it more like parents and and kids. You know, you, Nicodemus, you have biological parents, and they gave birth to you. You're their son, and there's nothing that you can do behavior-wise that will make you not their son. It's like part of who you are. In the same way, when you are born, spiritually speaking, you become a son or daughter of God, and no behavior can remove that Core identity, you can't do anything to remove yourself from the family. And Nicodemus just looks back at Jesus and says, how can this be? It's like, Jesus, I'm one of the smart guys. I mean, how, how could I have missed this? My whole life, I've tried to be perfect and obedient to sort of show God that I deserve to be at peace with him. And you're telling me it's, it's not that complicated just like I was born to my parents, I can be born into the family of God. How does that work? And Jesus, as he continues, he says something amazing. Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And Nicodemus, I think, got real quiet because what Jesus just said to Nicodemus would have been a little spooky Nicodemus has already said Jesus is a great teacher who's come from God and a miracle worker, but with this comment, Jesus is actually claiming a sort of exclusive relationship with God, and that that to Nicodemus would be a little spooky. I think Nicodemus had the sense he was in the presence of, of holiness. And then Jesus makes a prediction in the next verse that would have made more sense to Nicodemus than to us, at least the historical context. Here's what Jesus says. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and just pause there for a second. In the Old Testament of the Bible, which Nicodemus would have known well, uh, there's a story of God rescuing the children of a man named Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he leads them out of slavery in Egypt and into a land he promises to give them. Uh, and And during the time in between, they're camping in the Sinai Peninsula. And at one point, they camp in an area where there are snakes. And the snakes bite people, and the people start to get sick, and people start to die and so the people go and they wake Moses up. Moses is their leader. He's the one with the red phone to God. And they're like, Moses, you got to ask God, what are we going to do about these snakes? And so Moses asks God what to do. And God basically tells Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a large stick, which made about as much sense to them as it would have made to you or me. But they didn't really have any other options. And so they did it, and they put their faith, their trust, their belief, their hope in what God had said, and those who looked at the snake on the stick were healed. And so Jesus reaches back into the history of Israel and pulls this image forward. He says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And so, okay, Jesus, how do you get eternal life? Like, how do you get into heaven? Jesus would say this. He would say, it's belief, not behavior. It's belief, not behavior. And, and Nicodemus is stunned. I think he's even confused, maybe even a bit offended, But he goes back and he tells his group what Jesus said. And and, and they talk because if Jesus is right, then everything they stand for is wrong. Like this whole religious construction of do's and don'ts, it's it's not how we get to peace with God. And so as the months begin to roll on, this group watches as Jesus' popularity surges. And the Pharisees become jealous. And there's a day when there's a meeting and they decide that this Jesus thing has got to stop. And they go into a full court press to stop. Jesus and Nicodemus and Joseph are standing at the back of the meeting and they're listening. But they're not doing anything because they're afraid of what might happen to them. They're afraid of what people might think of them. And so Nicodemus and Joseph were there the night Jesus was arrested in the garden. They watched as he was falsely accused, tried, convicted, and beaten to a pulp. And they stood there and watched as Jesus dragged a piece of the cross through the streets of Jerusalem with a crown of thorns on his head, and they watched. And then there was the moment when Jesus dragged the cross just outside the city gates to a hill called Golgotha, or in Greek, Calvary. And then they watched as the end of the cross was placed in the ground, and then they watched as the head of Jesus began to rise above the crowd. And in that moment, Nicodemus realized something, Jesus expected this. He, he knew this was coming all along. Somehow, this was a part of his plan. It's what Jesus meant when he said, just as Moses lifted the stake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everybody who believes may have eternal life. It's, it's belief, it's not behavior that makes it right, makes us right with God. And, and again, these were educated Jewish men. And I imagine Nicodemus turning to Joseph and saying, oh, oh my goodness, do you remember the prophecy that that we never understood? 800 years before the time of Jesus, there was a prophet named Isaiah who said something about the anointed one, the one that God would someday send to rescue his people and to restore relationships. And and this prophet seemed to suggest that the one who came from God would suffer, but they never read it literally because they thought that's impossible. If somebody comes from God, there's no way they're going to suffer. Here's what the prophet Isaiah wrote. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It wasn't figurative, it, it, it was literal. And there at the cross, Nicodemus and Joseph watched as Jesus' first followers, those, those first guys to follow Jesus, they, they fled, they were afraid for their lives. And Nicodemus and Joseph stood in awe as prophecy was fulfilled before their eyes. Jesus was the son of man who was sent from God to take on himself the sins of the world. In that moment, they got it. You come to peace with God through belief, not behavior. It's his sacrifice for you and not your goodness that makes you right with God. And and this is the moment when Nicodemus and Joseph came out of hiding. And they go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the guy in charge of the city. And they ask for the body of Jesus. John tells us this way. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. He's like, if they knew, I'd be in all sorts of trouble. And this wasn't unprecedented in the first century. If you had enough money, you could go to the Roman governor and pay for the body of your loved one, and then you could give it a proper burial. John tells us he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was according to the Jewish burial custom. You'd take a body and you'd wash it and then you'd sort of mummify it. You'd wrap it in 75 pounds of cloth. And it's a fascinating detail, but it has incredible implications because if someone were not dead when you started wrapping them in 75 pounds of cloth, they would soon suffocate. John's account continues, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Matthew's account tells us this was Joseph's tomb, but irregardless, they placed Jesus' body in the tomb and they roll a stone over the entrance and it's sealed. And then they left, assuming Jesus was dead, assuming the story was over. But then as you know, three days later, everything changed. Here's why this is so critical for you and me. It was the faith and the courage and the concern for the body of Jesus that paved the way for you and me to have confidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Here's why. If there had been no one to pay for the body of Jesus and give it a proper burial, Jesus' body would have been left on the cross to rot. Rome would leave it up for days as a way to say to everyone, don't cross the Roman Empire then eventually Jesus' body would be taken down. It would be placed in a cart with other bodies. It would be taken outside of the city and dumped in a garbage dump in the valley of Ginhin, south of the city. And if that had been the story, if that had been the story of what happened to the body of Jesus, just imagine with me that three days later, Jesus comes walking back into the town. And people would say, well, obviously he never died. I mean, we thought he died. He was beaten to a pulp, but, but obviously he didn't really die. That's what would have happened had it not been for the unsung heroes of Easter. But because of what they did, first century Christians knew that Jesus had really died. And the eyewitnesses knew he really was alive. Nicodemus and Joseph's care for the body proved that he'd really died. He was really dead because they would have looked for signs of life before embalming him. And that's why there was no one at the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning as the sun rose. Nobody, not even Jesus' mother, expected resurrection. But shortly after the sun rose, Mary and Martha and a group of women came And they brought with them the things needed to properly bury Jesus' body. And you want to raise your hand and say, wait a minute, I thought the guys already did that. I would suggest that 2,000 years ago, they had a sense the guys probably hadn't done it right because they were guys, and I think that's probably fair, right? Uh, But they showed up and saw the stone had been moved, and they, they thought someone had stolen the body. They didn't expect resurrection. No one did. And then Peter and John arrived at the tomb as well, some of those first disciples of Jesus, and they're confused. And then Jesus appears to them alive. And he says to them, don't you remember? I told you. I told you. And friends, this is how Nicodemus and Joseph became the unsung heroes of Easter. That to me is why the first link in the chain is so trustworthy. It's unbelievable, and yet the evidence is undeniable. Moreover, Nicodemus and Joseph brought into the world an absolutely incredible idea that you enter a restored relationship with God through faith and not works. You find peace with God, not based on behavior, but based on belief, which means for all of us, There needs to be a moment when we shift our trust from what we can earn by good behavior to what Jesus has done for us. We shift our trust and we, in doing so, enter a restored relationship with God. It's not what we do. That's the message of religion. It's what's been done for us. It's it's grace. It's love. It's, it's too good to be true because we don't deserve it and we can't earn it. It's just grace. Years ago, I was listening to an Easter talk by a pastor in Atlanta named Louis Giglio, and he said it this way, and I just loved it. He, he said, Religion died on Friday. When Jesus hung on the cross, that was the, the end of religion. And grace, grace was born. On Sunday, everything, everything changed when Jesus rose. And he provided for us all a way to know where we stand with God on the cross. He paid the price for all the wrong things that we have done and that we will do. And then on Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave. And because he rose, we too will one day rise. Because on that first Easter Sunday, death itself was conquered. Death itself was defeated. Death itself was arrested.
2: mind E darkness rejoice though heaven pass
1: would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for many, many of us in this place, we come to celebrate. We have placed our faith in the sacrifice of your son. We have looked upon the cross. We've transitioned from trusting in our goodness to his goodness. And so today is is a beautiful celebration of that reality, that new life that we have in you. For others here, we entered this space with questions and with doubts and with concerns, and I can't help but wonder if for a few of us something clicked this morning, that we understood something for the first time. As we entered your story, we saw a bit of our story and maybe even the love that you have for us, the freedom that you invite us to embrace. And for those friends, I just pray there would be a moment today maybe even right now, where they would open their hands and open their hearts and just say, God, I, I surrender. I, I can't try anymore. I know I can't be good enough, but I believe that, that you have made a way where there was no way. And so I look to the cross and I believe, I trust that, that Jesus' death was for me. And in so doing, I know that you Welcome me as a son, as a daughter, into a restored relationship. Friends, this is the message of Easter. Father, we bless you. We thank you. We worship you. In the matchless name of the Messiah, your Son, the Anointed One, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Friends, go in peace. He is risen.